You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. My specialty is kind of the northern peoples of Eastern Europe, Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, uh, and a little bit Hungarians. But I have a, a special um, experience in my life. I went to graduate school at Indiana University, and that was the leading center for the study of Hungary in the Western Hemisphere. So I actually had, you know, as a graduate, three semester-long histories of Hungary, you know, from, mm-hmm. from Adam and Ava all the way to the 19. Uh, 70s. So uh, I have way more Hungarian history than is, is typical uh, in my profession. Um, today I'm going to talk about how Hungary went from being this big country in the Middle Ages to a little country in our time and, and all of the trauma uh, that that led to. And part of that trauma was Hungary goes from being half of the great Austro-Hungarian Empire to a little country and then trying to get back their lost land they end up in Hitler's empire and then uh, right after that in Stalin's empire. So, and, and so I'll tell that story and then uh, make a few connections of what's happened to them since World War II up to today. Um, so first, some background. Hungary used to be a big country. The Hungarians got there in 896. They're an Asiatic people. They're not uh, initially from Europe or even anywhere close. They came in from the east uh, as marauding barbarians. They passed through the Turkic world, and then they settled in this Danubian plain. They lived for 100 years, uh, 100 years robbing uh, all their neighbors. And then they converted to Christianity, settled down, became agricultural, and set up a kingdom called uh, Kingdom of Hungary. It's also uh, sometimes called the Lands of the Crown of St. Stephen, because Stephen, who becomes a saint, was their first king. And he sets up his kingdom in the year 1000. They call themselves Magyars. They call their country Magyarország, means uh, state of the Magyars. Um, but we call them uh, Hungarians. I'll, I'll use probably the word Hungarian uh, today for them. This medieval country they set up was, I mean, I can, I can put the borders. Oh, here we go. I can, I'll, I'll get rid of the other. Here we go. This is, so it, it's a big, so here's Hungary today. And here's what Hungary used to be. And you can see it, it was a lot bigger. And then the, the color coding is different ethnic groups. So about half the country were ethnically Hungarian, and half the country were something else. Slovaks, Ukrainians, uh, Romanians, Serbians, Croatians, Germans. Uh, so it's a very multi-ethnic country. But it didn't matter in the Middle Ages, because in the Middle Ages, all the political rights were vested in the nobility. Hungary had a lot of nobles, about 5% of the country. That's really high. Um, you could have a massive revolution just as noblemen in a country like that. Uh, it's run by nobles, and they speak Latin when they do their business. 
So your ethnicity wasn't that important. So you could have no women that were Hungarian, Slovak, Romanian, Croatian, but they all would consider themselves part of this kingdom of Hungary. In the 16th century, that kingdom starts to break up. What happens first is the Ottoman Empire from the south, this big Muslim superpower, comes in and defeats them and takes most of it. The part they didn't take joins Austria and becomes part of the Austrian Empire, run by the Habsburg family. So Hungary from 1526 until about 1699 is divided between Ottomans and the Habsburgs. Then the Habsburgs are going to win a series of wars against the Ottomans and take it all. So by 1700, they're now part of the, um, I'll go back to the big empire. They're part now of this big empire. And you can see it's a very multi-ethnic empire. The colors are different. Nobody has a majority. The Germans are the purple. The Hungarians are the green. These are the Romanians. These are the Ukrainians. These are the Poles. These are the Czechs. Uh, uh, Croatians, Serbians, Slovenians, Bosnian Muslims, uh, Italians. Uh, and Hungarians are part of that. But once they're uh, in the Austrian Empire, they're going to be constantly fighting to defend their rights against the Austrians. So they don't want Austria or Vienna telling them what to do. So there'll be a whole series of conspiracies, revolts, even wars between Austrians and Hungarians uh, over that question. So it's going to become a big part of Hungarian identity is fighting for their rights, not letting uh, somebody from the outside tell them what to do. At the same time as they're fighting for their rights against the Austrians, they're dominating their own minorities. They don't want their minorities to claim the same kind of rights against them that they are claiming against the Austrians. Uh, when I first learned all this back in the 70s and 80s, probably early 80s, uh, I, the example they would use uh, to make a parallel with the contemporary situation was uh, in Quebec. The French speakers in Canada were making uh, they were trying to defend their independence against the English speakers in Canada. And then when the native peoples in northern Quebec wanted the same kind of rights for themselves, the French Canadian says, no, 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 uh, that's not for you. Uh, and so Hungary's doing kind of the same thing. We don't want Austria telling us what to do, but we don't want our own minorities having their own local self-government either. And it made perfect sense from a Hungarian uh, perspective. But once you get to modern times, Two things happen, uh, big things happen in the world, or in Europe. First, the French Revolution. And you get this idea that the nation is now not just the aristocracy or the nobility, but it's everybody. That sovereignty uh, belongs to everybody. Uh, and then secondly, you get German romanticism, which gives us the notion that, that your identity is connected with your language, your ethnicity, your culture, uh, that who you are uh, is, is tied to the language you speak. And so you start to get nationalist movements. And these various Croatians and Serbians and Romanians and Slovaks and, and so on start to assert themselves more and more. And so Hungary's worried about this because they have a country that's this size, but it's only half Hungarian. If these ethnic groups start to assert themselves, uh, it's going to be at the expense of the unity of Hungary. So their plan was to simply turn everybody into a Hungarian through the education system. So you make everybody go to schools that are, where Hungarian is the language, make sure all the universities are in Hungarian, make sure as many high schools as possible are uh, only in Hungarian language, 
require people to change their names to Hungarian sounding names if they want to have successful careers, change the names of all the, the towns and villages to Hungarian names, and on and on. That was called Magyarization, turning our people into Hungarians. The uh, image they used was, it's like a machine that makes sausages. Like you, you pour in at the one end, the Slovaks and the Romanians and so on, and then out the other end comes a Hungarian. And this was working fairly well. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I mean, just about everywhere in the world, you assimilate to the dominant culture to have a successful career. You know, rural people in America have to assimilate to urban values, for example, to have successful professional careers often. Uh, and so a lot of these poor Slovaks and Romanians, if they were smart and went to school and did well, uh, they would eventually become Hungarians. So modernization's working, but it's not working fast enough. And when World War I comes, Hungary's minorities defect. The Slovaks join with the Czechs and create Czechoslovakia. The Romanians join with an already existing country of Romania, and they leave Hungary. The southern part of Hungary joins Yugoslavia with the South Slavic peoples. And so Hungary ends up a much smaller country. They're going to lose two-thirds of their territory. It'd be like if the United States lost everything west of the Mississippi. They're going to lose three-fifths of their population. It'd be like if we lost like about 180 million people. Um, they're going to lose one out of every three Hungarians. Because you see, once Hungary gets whittled down to this size, you've got all these Hungarians living here. Hundreds of thousands of Hungarians are living up here in Czechoslovakia. Over a million are living in Romania, not just next door, but way over here. And then you've got pockets of them down here, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand in Yugoslavia. So this is going to become a huge problem for the Hungarians, is we lost our historic kingdom. And not only that, but even our own people are living across the borders now in somebody else's country. There are three million Hungarians living in somebody else's country. And they lose 84% of their timber, because this is where the forests were. And they lose 83% uh, of their iron ore, because it was in those places as well. And they lose 43% uh, of their arable land, because a lot of that was down here. So it's a big blow to the Hungarians. The last minute, as, as the war was ending and Austria-Hungary was collapsing, uh, they, they try to cut deals with all the minorities and give them uh, more rights. But it's too little too late. And the whole thing falls apart. They had a, a liberal socialists took over the regime. Uh, there were these efforts. In, as, as the war was ending and Hungary was collapsing, the Hungarians thought, and this is, this is smart thinking, I think, um, they thought, if the conservative government resigns, and liberals and socialists take over, the Western powers will be nicer to us because that's what they are. They'll, they'll appreciate our government. <laughs> Germany did the same thing. Uh, they tried and it didn't work. They were still being treated badly by the allies. Uh, so then communists took over. So for 133 days, Hungary had a communist government in, in uh, early 1919. And even conservative anti-communist Hungarians oftentimes supported that government because their hope was Soviet Union with the Red Army will come blasting into here and help us keep all of Hungary together. That didn't work either. So by summer of 1919, you have a right-wing government back in power, led by Admiral Horthy, or Horthy. Uh, it was odd that a little landlocked country would have an admiral for its king. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people made fun of that uh, at the time. Uh, they also were a kingdom, but they didn't have a king. Uh, they couldn't agree on who to make their king, so they became a 
kingless kingdom led by an admiral without a navy. Um, <laughs> In 1920, in June, they signed the famous Treaty of Trianon, and that's the treaty that assigns officially uh, all this area to these other countries. And so that's the great tragedy of Hungarian history, uh, Trianon. Now, Paris Peace Conference had a lot of, of problems. If you, uh, in other courses and other issues, uh, you're probably aware of those already, uh, but definitely, you know, it's the winters inflicting the peace treaty on the losers. There, there was no attempt to sort of uh, make it more palatable to the losers the way they did after you know, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and secondly, they used the principle of national self-determination. So um, since Czechs lived up here uh, and Slovaks lived over here, they got to have their own country. And the South Slavic peoples got to have their own country. And the Poles got this to be part of Poland. Uh, the Romanians got all this because that's where the Romanians live. So you're, you're supposed to give people their own country. But as you can see, they're very mixed up in this part of the world. And it was very hard to draw a border. So when you draw the border between Slovaks and uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary, here's the Danube River. So um, the Czechoslovakia argued, you know, we want the river to be the border. And the Hungarians said, well, but there's all these people live here are Hungarians. They should be in Hungary if you want to give everybody the right to national self-determination. But at Paris Peace Conference, if you were uh, one of the countries deemed the winner, you were given land where the other people <laughs> live. So even though these were all Hungarians here, they weren't going to be in Hungary because Slovakia said, well, we need the river for our economic. Or we need the river to protect us. We can't let the Hungarians have this here because they'll build bases and attack us. And every one of these borders, you had the same kind of argument. The winning countries were getting land in which minority groups from the losing countries lived for some other uh, reason. What this means is you're going to end up with a lot of people living across the borders from the country that would be their mother country. Uh, and these are called the irredenta. It's Italian word for the unredeemed. It, these are your own people, but they don't live in your country. They live across the border. And if you're a true nationalist, you would like to see that border move so you can get all those people uh, into your country. So that's going to, every one of these borders across the whole East European region is going to be contested by somebody during the 1920s and 30s. The interwar period is going to be full of problems. And I'll run through these. Uh, problems for all of Europe in some cases. Problems especially in Eastern Europe in some cases. And some of these specific to the Hungarians. So number one was economic disruptions. So when you used to have a big empire like this, or a big kingdom, and then, um, and they were, oh, by the way, important uh, detail. In 19th century, in defending their rights against the Austrians, Hungary had a big revolution in 1848, and it lost. Then they went into 20 years of passive resistance and forced the Austrians to give them what they want. So in 1867, the Austrians restructured their entire empire and turned it into Austria-Hungary with an Austrian half and a Hungarian half. So it's not like the Hungarians are in the Austrian Empire. Now it's the empire is two parts, Austrian and Hungarian. So they like that. So that's why we call it Austria-Hungary by the time we get to World War I. Um, so when they were in that big empire, you know, they controlled all of this. This was the Hungarian half. Once they're whittled down to this size, all those bureaucrats, military officers, railroad personnel, anybody who had a state job, 
were Hungarian. They all have to go home now, unemployed, because the new countries are going to hire their own people. So you get you know, huge numbers of unemployed Hungarian officials moving back. Well, that's a problem. Also, in the old kingdom, there were these borders here. So people could move around. Goods could move. Workers could move. Resources could move. Um, and now there are borders between hostile countries, and trade's going to break down. Um, you know, Slovak girls used to go down to Budapest to be nannies. Can't do that anymore. Slovaks, uh, Romanians would come and help harvest the grain. Can't do that anymore. Slovaks would come down and fix. They were good at repairing windows. Don't do that anymore. Uh, so lots of disruption. And then the depression hits in 1929 and makes things even worse. And the countries don't want to cooperate with each other to revive the economies because of their hostility about the borders. So that's the first problem. Second problem, in Hungary, you could if you were the government, you could blame all your problems on foreigners. So the government of Hungary says, you know, the reason you guys are so poor and miserable in Hungary and we have half our peasants don't have any land and workers are unemployed, because the evil Western powers forced this evil peace treaty on us, and our evil, greedy neighbors took big chunks of our kingdom. And if we got it all back, everybody would be much better off. So they just focused people's attention on nationalism, on getting their land back. That was called revisionism. Revise the treaty of Trianon, revise the whole post-war settlement, uh, and go back to the old way. And they made a big deal of this. They had monuments to Trianon, eternal flame that's going to burn until Hungary gets all its lands back. Little kids would have to start the day in school by saying a prayer where they mention how Hungary used to be heaven, but now it is hell. Um, there was a, um, the slogan was Nim Nim Shoha. No, no, never. When I started studying this stuff, those are the only words I knew in, in Hungarian because I went to a lecture like the one you're at. And I heard always stuck in my head. And when I went to visit the country for the first time in, eight, in 1984, um, it, it was communist, but it had gotten liberal enough that you had drug dealers and money changers and prostitutes uh, harassing you. Uh, and I started saying to them, nem nem shoha. And they would seriously just start laughing. It'd be like in some foreigner coming to the US and saying, like, give me liberty or give me death you know, to, like a, to a drug dealer. Um, <laughs> Big problem is the region's going to get divided between two antagonistic military alliances. Let me see. Let me get a. Um, uh, this, uh, let's get a. Oh, this will be the best one, I think. Um, so France was backing Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Poland. Those are considered the winner countries. And Mussolini, who was upset with the way World War I turned out, mm -hmm. he started aligning with the loser countries who'd lost territory Austria, Hungary, and Bulgaria. So you have two mutually antagonistic military alliances developing. Another thing, it's weird that France and Italy should be the major players in Eastern Europe. That was because Germany was weakened by World War I, and Russia was weakened by all the turbulence of the In the 30s, Germany's going to resurge and become the dominant force. And then by mid-40s, Soviet Union will be dominant force. But the 20s was an odd period. But nevertheless, the region is divided. And Hitler and then later Stalin are going to be able to come in and use those ethnic animosities in the region to manipulate those people. And Hungary, her three enemies were Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia, because they had all that territory on the old map that I, I showed you they wanted. Hungary had 35,000 soldiers in their army. These countries had 500,000 soldiers. So there was no chance Hungary could ever get anything back 
militarily unless some big friend steps in to help them. And that's where Adolf Hitler comes into the picture. So Hitler was a man with a plan. He wants to launch this big war, conquer <laughs> the western part of the Eurasian land mass. He really wants Western Soviet Union to be part of a giant German empire. And he doesn't want to run out of food like the Germans did in World War I. So he wants to become friends with all these little countries down here and develop trade agreements so Germany can get food and resource supply during the war. So he's interested in Hungary when he comes to power in 33. And Germany spends the next several years developing its economic ties with this part of the world to buy, buy, you know, 36, 37, they're the dominant trading partner of everybody. Second thing, Hitler wants to dismantle the post-war settlement. And so Hungary likes that. So, so Hitler's stepping in during the Depression and buying up Hungarian grain at a good price that otherwise the peasants can't sell. And he's giving them hopes that they can get the borders redrawn. So these are two big pluses for the Hungarians. Also, with the Depression and all the traumas of the 30s, politics gets more radical in Hungary. So in the 20s, it was run by just old-fashioned conservatives. But by the time we get to the 30s, by the time we get to the 30s, a more radical right-wing element takes power. So a guy named Gumbusch becomes the leader. He's the first statesman to visit Hitler. He actually goes to Germany in June of 33 on an official visit, and Hitler tells him, look, I want you to focus your animosity on Czechoslovakia. Leave Romania and Yugoslavia alone. Because Hitler wants to be friends with these guys, too. He wants Romanian oil. He wants Yugoslav you know, uh, resources and food. So focus on Czechoslovakia. And so the Hungarians do that. And then when Hitler comes in and gets the Munich Agreement, Hungary gets all of this. Then in March of 39, when Hitler destroys Czechoslovakia and takes the Czech lands, Hungary marches in and takes Subcarpathian Russia. So th this area here. All, all, all six of my eight great-grandparents are from this little area here. So they all, they all changed borders at that time, had they stayed there about them here, thank God. Um, secondly, um, oh, then, then in summer of, of uh, oh, I actually have a better map of this. Here we go. So uh, they're going to get this. They're going to get this. Then they're going to get um, a, a, a. That's still not the map I want. Where's the map I want? Yeah. It, it was that funny looking one that had a goofy look. Oh, here we go. So they're going to get this, this here. Then they're going to get this in March of 39. Then Hitler's going to let them have all of this in the summer of 40. He's going to cut Transylvania in half, let Romania keep half, and give Hungary back. So they got back half what they lost here, all what they lost here a chunk of what they lost here, and then they're going to get northern Yugoslavia in 41 when Hitler invades them. So they've actually gained in all directions about half back of what they lost, thanks to Hitler. But every time they gain something, Hitler exacts a price, believe it or not. Uh, so they would have to become more tight with Germany in their foreign policy. They would have to uh, distance themselves from the Western powers, and they would have to pass stricter anti-Jewish laws. So this whole pattern starts to emerge. Uh, historians call this the Chardash policy. Anybody heard of a Chardash? 
So it's a, it's a dance. It's like two steps to the left, two steps to the right. It's an old folk dance in Hungary. And the um, idea was Hitler would offer the Hungarians something. They would take it, and that would draw them to the right. And then the conservatives would step in and say, you know, this is, this is not good for Hungary. We're losing our independence. Uh, we're doing things we really shouldn't be doing. So they would get a new prime minister appointed. So they'd move a couple steps back to the left. And then some new land would come to pick up, and Hungary would seize that opportunity, and they would get sucked even deeper into Hitler's uh, alliance. Then they would try to distance themselves a bit, and then they would get sucked in again, because he could keep offering them more territory, and an uh, enormous amount of the Hungarians wanted territory back. Uh, so this creates this pattern uh, from 1938 into the 40s. And the conservatives, who were the traditional rulers of Hungary, uh, they're caught between pressure from Hitler and pressure from their own population. Because this was very popular, these pro-Nazi policies. First of all, if you're a farmer, and that's half the country at least, he's buying your grain. He's saving you from the depression. He's giving you a decent uh, economic uh, situation. If you're a student, you like the anti-Jewish laws, because they're saying you know, Jews are going to be limited in admissions to college, or admissions to medical school, or law school, or uh, so on. So students tended to like these uh, rules. If you're a shopkeeper, and you don't like Jewish competition, you like these, uh, this drip into the Nazi camp. And if you're the military, you love uh, now having relations with Germany and getting German military hardware and going to Germany for military exercises. So this was popular uh, with a lot of the people. Was uh, Not that the people were Nazis themselves, but they saw the wisdom in an alliance with Hitler. Big distinction, uh, I think it's always important to make, between conservatives and radicals on the right wing. And Hungary is a good illustration of this difference. Um, so in Hungary at this time, if you were more conservative, you wanted a foreign policy that kept Hungary independent. You wanted to have good relations with all the big powers in Europe, with Germany, Italy, France, Britain. If you were a radical right wing, you wanted to throw all your eggs into Hitler's basket. If you were conservative, you were more tolerant of Jews. You didn't have a problem with them getting wealthy, having a big role in business and finance, having a big role in, in medical professions and law professions, as long as they stayed out of politics. If you were a radical right wing, you wanted to root them out of all those positions and put real Hungarians in there. If you were conservative, you wanted to keep the traditional elites in power. If you were a radical right wing, you wanted to bring in outsiders and really disrupt things. If you're a conservative, you just wanted a kind of an authoritarian system with law and order and stability. If you were on the radical right, you wanted to shake things up. If you're a conservative, you were a bit more stingy with social programs. If you were a radical right wing, if you were a fascist, the Hungarian fascists were called the Arrow Cross because their symbol was crossed arrows, kind of like their own swastika. You were for social programs, job programs, redistribute wealth, give land to the peasants, have public works projects. There's key differences between those groups. And the conservatives tried to fight that drift in the radical right direction in the 30s, but it was hard to do that because thanks to Hitler, Hungary was getting back the lost territory. And that was the number one priority of most Hungarians. So in World War II, Hungary was an odd country in a couple of ways. It remained an independent country for almost the entire war. They weren't a puppet state of Nazi Germany. They had their own, their own government, their own parliament. They had their own elect, free elections. 
They had a legal social democratic party. All of that until 44. They had debates in parliament. They had a free press that could talk about, uh, a largely free press. They could talk about uh, political issues, criticize the government, so on and so on. Social, this kind of uh, other interesting thing is the population, even the working class was, was moving to the right. So in the workers' districts of Budapest, the fascists beat the socialists in a free election in the 40s. So the country's moving in that direction. And the, another thing, they are rivals with Romania. So when Hitler cut Transylvania in half and let Hungary have half of it back, his message to the Hungarians and the Romanians were, Whoever serves me the best during World War II might end up with all of it. And so they tried to outdo each other in helping Hitler. And when they went to the Eastern Front and fought Soviet Union, huge numbers of those troops that die in those big battles in the East were Romanians and Hungarians trying to outdo each other, hoping that in the end they would get all the land. Well, Hungary's on the losing side. Romania switches sides. For th they end up in a race to switch sides once the tide turns. And, and uh, Romania switches first, and they get to be a winner. And Hungary doesn't switch, and they get to be a big loser. And now they're going to be punished, and now they're going to be in Stalin's empire. But not right away. Stalin moved carefully with Hungary. The Western powers had pretty much promised him that he could dominate Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria. And we pretty much stayed out of those countries. But Hungary was kind of left up in the air. So he wasn't sure he was going to get Hungary. So he told the communists to have a multi-party government, to have free elections. And so Hungary ends up with a free elections. Uh, uh, now, the right-wing parties were banned, so it wasn't totally free. But they had an election in 45. And the communists lose. They get 17%. You know, 83% of the country is running against them. 57% voted for the smallholders' party. It's a little farmers' party. But then the communists have the big advantage that the country is occupied by the Soviet Red Army. And they can use the Red, or Red Army controls, gasolines, jeeps, roadblocks, uh, communications. And they can use that assistance to fight the other parties. And so the communists start bullying the other parties. They start slicing them away. They, the word for that is salami tactics. You slice them like you're slicing up a salami. That's the communist's own word for this, not ours. So they start attacking the non-communist parties. Those guys run to the US embassy. Hey, you guys help us. The communists are bullying us around. And our response to them was, if you've got a problem, go talk to the Soviet general. That's not our business. Our business was France and Italy and Western Europe, and we pretty much didn't intervene with the Soviets in Eastern Europe until it was too late, until a couple more years later. So by 48, Hungary's firmly in the Soviet bloc. It's got a one-party dictatorship. The communists have gotten rid of everybody else. And they have a, a Stalinist-type government. And under this government, they are no longer, nobody's allowed to talk about border revision. Hungary has to live like this because if you start talking about borders, you're creating disruption in the Soviet camp. So border revision has to disappear. Let me just kind of follow up after the war. So, so they're in Stalin's empire now. Stalin will die though in 53. Hungary's going to be an odd paradox under the communists. They're going to be the only people in the world 
to actually rise up and have a, literally a war against the Soviet Union, trying to free themselves. The 1956 revolution. And by the 70s and 80s, they're going to be the one country that the Soviet Union allows the most freedom to. So they're going to start to reform themselves, try to turn themselves into almost what looks like a West European country. It was remarkable to watch that happen. And when communism starts to fade away or collapse across this region, Hungary will do it without a revolution. They're going to just literally transform themselves through their own free will into a West European-style multi-party democracy with freedom and free press and so on and so on. There's an interesting kind of circle back to the Habsburgs in the old empire. So as Hungary's becoming more and more liberal in the, in the I remember I went there in, I went there in 80, it must have been summer of 88, and we crossed the border, and there was like no border, like nobody was checking our passports. We're like in the train station looking around for border control. I kind of wanted to get the stamp in there because I like to collect those visa stamps. And we had to go find the guy to get the stamp, and they've really gotten lax. And in summer of August of, 30, of 89, Otto von Habsburg, who was the heir to the Habsburg throne, if they were still an empire, he would be the emperor. He just died recently. Um, Otto von Habsburg has a picnic on the Austro-Hungarian border. And the most liberal Hungarian communist co-sponsors the picnic. His name was Poizsikai. He was like their Gorbachev. Um, so they open the border for the picnic. And people can walk back and forth between the countries. And East German tourists who lived in the communist country, were only allowed to go on vacations to communist countries, um, they realized, hey, we can walk into Austria and then go to West Germany and become those <laughs> refugees. And they start doing this by the thousands. And it, it's like a, like a spring in a bucket, a hole in a bucket. And this creates a huge scandal in Eastern Europe. And this leads to the bringing down of the Berlin Wall and the whole collapse of communism. That, uh, uh, not that Otto did it with his picnic, but there were a lot of things going on. But that was one of, one of, the, one of the events. Um, Hungary today is a very interesting case. Um, it's one of the most right-wing countries in Europe. Um, right-wing populists govern it. They've got 67% or 66% of the parliament, so they can do just about what they want. And the major opposition party is extreme radical right-wing, really kind of a fascist party, uh, with roots back in the 30s. Um, and so that's about you know, a, a huge proportion of the country. And the left wing is very, very weak. They were a very scandal-ridden government and got voted out of power about eight years ago and haven't really done much since. Uh, and these guys that are running this right-wing populist government today in Hungary, especially Viktor Orban, their leader, these are the liberal, pro-Western, democratic guys from the 80s. Uh, these kind of hip young guys that became the founders of the new uh, Europeanized Hungary. Uh, and they've drifted to the right wing since and became populist. Now they really like Putin, and they want to create an illiberal democracy, uh, as they call it in Hungary. They're quite uh, open and proud about this. Um, so just to conclude, so you get a country that was big, with multi-ethnic elite, but then when we get into modern era, when nationalism starts to matter, and people's language starts to matter, and they connect themselves to certain territories, and they want to have their own nation states or their own self-government, uh, that creates a huge crisis. It all cracks up in World War I. You have this problem of irredenta, Hungarians living outside Hungary, with Hungary interested in their fate. Trying to get those guys back leads them into Hitler's camp. Losing the war leads them into Stalin's camp. 
under the communists, you can't talk about this stuff anymore, but after 89, you can. So when they have the first elections after 89, here we go, the newly elected prime minister of Hungary says, I am the prime minister of all the Hungarians. In other words, not just these guys, but these guys here, and these guys here, and these guys here, and these guys here. So that scares all the neighbors. And then through the 90s, especially into the 2000s, and even a little bit today, Hungary was very concerned about the Hungarians living abroad. And would even sort of meddle in the affairs of, of her neighbors. And so that created all kinds of tensions around this region. Um, the real radical right groups want to bring back the old kingdom of Hungary. And you'll see sometimes guys in like leather jackets in Budapest, kind of scary looking guys with a big patch with the map of old Hungary uh, on there. Um, but that's, that's an unrealistic program. Most Hungarians aren't supporting anything like that. But there's still that, that mentality still around, that we lost something tragically, uh, and uh, maybe we can, we can get it back. If you can't get it all back, maybe you can at least get back those border regions where Hungarians live. If you can't get them back, at least you can do something to connect yourselves with and help those Hungarians, like pay for Hungarian language schools in those countries. They were offering certain welfare programs for Hungarians living abroad to get money from Hungary for various things. Start new businesses, get money granted. You want to start a Hungarian business in another country. So there was this sort of what was seen by the um, neighbors as meddling. Today, the biggest problem in Hungary isn't Hungarian minority uh, so much as fear of refugees and immigrants coming in from the south. Uh, so they even build a wall uh, to keep people out and, and direct them off in this, uh, this uh, area. So again, a, a very interesting, uh, interesting country. And that, that trauma of, you know, that, that, this is a huge problem around the world, is when you, you have people from your own country living in some other countries. So that was, Hitler could use that to start World War II. He used the Germans in Czechoslovakia and the Germans in Poland as pretext for the war. Uh, Russia can intervene in Ukraine because it's got a lot of Ukrainians. Uh, Russia could probably intervene in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia at, at some point if it wants to. Uh, and places in the Caucasus and Central Asia because of, of Russian minorities. Whether those Russians themselves want this or not is another question, but you can use your own people living in other countries uh, for these purposes. So Hungary was kind of a, a treaty treat on, and then its aftermath was a destabilizing factor uh, in this part of the world. So I'll, I'll leave you with that, and uh, we have time, probably seven minutes or so for questions or comments. Yes? I'd like to hear uh, your comments about how bad the inflation the worst in world history. Oh, oh, after First World War II. Yeah, is that right? This, yeah. this, is, this is 1946, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah, the, 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 so the money, money just kind of collapses because you, you have to, because um, uh, you know, your, your old regime's gone, your old system's gone, you're ending up uh, in a new uh, situation. So that, and that also, the problem with that is it's, and especially after World War I, that's what helped Hitler and these guys come to power was, you know, you, 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 it changes people's values because you know you work hard and you save your money, and then your entire life savings gets wiped away in like two weeks. You know it starts costing you a know, hundred million dollars to buy a stick of gum. You know because everything just gets totally out of out of control. Uh, and, and so that's that's usually the worst part of the inflation is it hurts people on fixed incomes. It destroys your insurance policies. It destroys if you're if you're somebody's paying you rent, and they're paying you a thousand dollars a month, and all of a sudden a thousand dollars isn't worth a nickel. Um, so all those things have like, bad uh, consequences for the society and then uh, lead people to, to seek stability, sometimes through some radical solution. 
decision not to support the Hungarians mm -hmm. lingers really powerful in mm -hmm. the collective memory. Um, and I think that also has sort of affected the, the ensuing argument about democracy okay. and liberal support and issues. Another one was how much of Hungary is still rural mm -hmm. and the uniqueness of their culture and language mm -hmm. making it like a very difficult language beyond those mm -hmm. who know their language. So mm -hmm. those are some elements that just I was thinking about yeah, when you were talking about this. Good point. And, and, the, and there was, Obama upset them too, or, or upset the right wing when he was, he, they were like kind of, uh, kind of taking over government TV and government radio. And, and he kind of intervened. And, and there was a reaction against that. But in 56, not only did we not aid them, but we were broadcast, we were kind of encouraging uh, them to rise up through Radio for Europe. Yeah. And this, as I understand, that was, we hired Hungarian emigres to do the broadcasting because uh, we didn't have Hungarian speakers that were, and they were kind of getting kind of carried away with all of this and like wanting to see an uprising too. Uh, but our policy was really to stay out. In fact, we even told the Soviets a week before uh, indirectly that this is not in our sphere of interest. So we're not going to intervene. Somebody else? Anyone, one, one more question? Okay. Oh, yeah. Have you, uh, I'm curious, as a high school teacher, I actually this last school year, I was teaching about 19th century. I talked about the Austro-Hungarian mm -hmm. Empire. I was trying to explain that. Um, it can be difficult enough to explain some of these basic concepts with all the different ethnicities. I actually right. used that image. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. I found it on, I found it online. So, I was just wondering, have you um, taught this material to high schoolers, and how would you sort of adjust it to make it a little more? The, the level of knowledge oh, is yeah. generally lower than. than yeah, I used to go to oh, every year. One of my students became a teacher at one of my students became a teacher at Montlake Terrace High School, and every year for about five years, I would come up and give like about eight eight a.m. usually yeah. uh, um, uh, to about three history classes, uh, and so I'd have to do uh, similar similar things. So first of all, you, you can't just rattle off the list of all the ethnic minorities. Right? You've, got, you've got to sort of um, maybe just <coughs> use a case study or two. Say, like, this is, this is, this is the, like, like, for now, when I'm going to talk about borders, um, I'll talk about, like, you know, wh why this border got drawn here, and what were the implications, and what were the arguments for that border. But I, I won't talk about all the borders. Right, so you, you, you kind of find, so one of these is find a case study that will, will raise the kind of issues you want to talk about, but you can do it within a, so all they have to do is figure out, you know, maybe two or three different people instead of 11. So that would be, that would be uh, one way, but uh, it, is, it is hard to, because um, you can't presuppose, uh, the farther east you get, the less people know. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's a challenge, but, um, and uh, so, um, and then also, you know, also tie, you know, tie it to the start of World War I. Because anytime you can tie something to some big issue and say, you know, this, this, this kind of situation, these people down here, they belong to Austria, and the Serbians were unhappy about that. So sometimes that's a, if, if you can tie it into the 1848 revolution or something like that, rather than events that are only taking place in the region that kids can't connect with other things. That would be another thing to do. But you, you'd be better at that than me because you have like, all the experience with talking to that age, age uh, group. Okay, well, thank you so much. I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day.